this is what it says in Matthew's Gospel and chapter 11. It says this, Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied unto John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine biber. A, friend, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. And then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsheba! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tur and Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good to your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. 
Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for this time that you've given us to look at your word, a time you've given us to, to spend in fellowship with each other as we sing to you. And Father, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would guide us, that you would speak to us through your word, Lord. We've come not just to fellowship with each other, but to fellowship with you. God, you are real and you are alive today and you desire to speak to us. So as we open your word, your word which is living and active, may you speak to each and every one of us. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. Good afternoon, everyone. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one right to you. Open them up, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 11 today. We have this crazy wild hair to actually take on the entire chapter. Yeah, I agree. It's madness. There's such beautiful and rich things in there. Let's, once you've got it open to chapter 11, let's go right away into prayer. And let's dig in. Pray with me if you would, please. God, thank you so much for the privilege of this time. I pray you would redeem every second of it. Have your way now. As we commit ourselves to you, Lord, we pray that your word would burst open and come alive for each of us. Draw us now into a deeper and more meaningful relationship with you. We pray for the rebirth people and those that are at Soul Survivor right now, out ministering in other places. We pray you would bless them, Lord, as they're out. And take this time now, Lord, and do beautiful things to each of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today is that would any please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Uh, in Matthew chapter 11, we now pick it up after Jesus has just spent a chapter, if you remember, preparing his disciples. He has taken from a sea of disciples and he's picked from that 12 ambassadors, apostles, sent out ones. And as he sends them out, he sends them out with a simple message to a simple crowd. He doesn't send them out to everyone, but he does send them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And his message is Jesus is coming. It's really that simple. And so he sends them and prepares them. Chapter uh, 10, of course, is that. Chapter 11 now, what we really see in this is Jesus now speaking to the rest. Speaking to not only the sea of disciples that remain, but also he goes into the towns for which they prepared. Now understand, the disciples or these apostles, these twelve were sent to towns, their towns and other towns surrounding in the area of Galilee. And as they do, they're saying Jesus is coming. And it was very true. He shows up shortly thereafter. And this is that what takes place once Jesus shows up. We have in this now uh, really kind of a a mounting confusion really in chapter 11 with John the Baptist and really Jesus' last repartee with John the Baptist before John the Baptist passes away. Uh, And we'll see that, uh, you know, certainly in the text in a few chapters. Uh, But also by the next chapter, we'll start seeing the real mounting opposition of the religious leadership of the day. That is a real problem with Jesus. 
And Jesus has this way of mucking up tradition. He has this way of sort of messing up what we're familiar with that we've kind of gotten comfortable and stagnant in that really, in essence, contradicts or at least dilutes the truth of the word. So take a look at it with me in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now it came to pass. When Jesus had finished commanding his 12 disciples, they're still disciples, even if they are apostles, they're still his students, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now, John's problem with Jesus, to be honest, is the same problem most of the Jewish people have today that refuse to believe in Jesus. I mean, there were two basic points about the Mashiach that was to come, the Messiah. Uh, They had been prophesied all the way back thousands of years prior, all the way back to Genesis, if we're really going to be honest, to chapter 3. But the two primary characteristics that they expected and we would expect. The first is a conqueror. One who would come and demand vengeance for the injustices that have been played upon Israel. Uh, the other, by the way, would be that he is a comforter and he would come to bring comfort to Israel. Isaiah thirteen six says it's a time of destruction from the Almighty. Jeremiah forty six ten says it's a day of vengeance is the term. Nachim is the word in the Hebrew. It means to avenge. Exodus. I'm sorry, Ezekiel 30 tells us it'll be a time where the Gentiles will be risen up, by the way. Joel 2.11 says it'll be a time when he executes his word. Amos 5.20 tells us it'll be a day of darkness. Zephaniah 2.3, a time of great victory. Zechaniah, um, sorry, chapter 14, verse 1, it tells us is a time where they will divide the spoils. Joel tells us it's a terrible day. Isaiah 13.4 tells us it's a time when the army gathers for battle. Jeremiah 30 calls it in verse 7 the time of Jacob's trouble. But it is a time where we read in Isaiah 42.13 where he will triumph over his enemies. There's the point in all of that. Zephaniah 1.15 reiterates that point. That he will be, it will be a time of great triumph because the Messiah, Meshach David, comes to conquer. Interesting, among the rabbis today, the argument is that there's a problem with reconciling texts like Isaiah 53, which talks about him suffering. And it's interesting because there's this, in, in the book of Genesis, or better sheets to the Hebrews, it is actually more presses given to, to Joseph than anyone else. And, and so when we look at the book of Genesis, we look and we go, now why so much attention to somebody who's not even in the lineage of Jesus? He's actually, of course, will, have, uh, will father the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, it's interesting because he's a type, and, and there are rabbis who argue that there would be two messiahs. The messiah, they call him Mashiach ben David, or the messiah, the son of David, who will come to conquer. But then the Mashiach ben Yosef, the son of Joseph, who would actually come to comfort. And that's how they reconcile all of these texts. So what John the Baptist is trying to reconcile in all of this is that the way that things are coming down look very, very different from the way we have filled in the blanks about Jesus coming or the Messiah coming to conquer. What does he come to conquer in the first place? Now the issue, though, is we start to look at it, if we start to dig into it a little bit more, Nechem 1.5 tells us that the great deliverance that God is going to lead will be a time, as Malachi 3.2 tells us, of great cleansing. And we're good with that. Uh, Ezekiel 34 tells us that he would deliver them from the bad shepherds who have come to feast on the sheep. Ezekiel 36:29 tells us that he would come to deliver them from their own uncleanness and redeem them, says Jeremiah 50, verse 3 and 4. So I look at this and I think, 
Well, how does Jesus, in his response here, solve John's dilemma? Now, John has already had one problem, and that sets us up for this. Because the problem in the beginning was over feasting and fasting. If you remember his disciples talking to Jesus, his disciples arguing and saying, why is it that we have like the bummer group? We're with John the Baptist and we fast all the time. I mean, it's all it's, it's all this sacrifice and hardship and all of this. And it's like, I look at you guys and you guys are all celebrating and you're, you're feasting. And it's like, I've certainly joined the wrong church. It's kind of the idea here. And, and Jesus' response and all of that is important. When, and, and John's would be ultimately too. It's like the friend of the bridegroom. It's can those of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom's there? And Jesus brings this back to a marriage, and that is really important, because understand, one thing we know about a traditional Middle Eastern marriage is it comes in two events. It comes where he comes first to make his engagement, his betrothal, and then he comes back to then take his bride. And he, Jesus sets this up for these two comings. Now we look at this, and John the Baptist is kind of freaking out. Now understand, all the way back in chapter 2 of, of Matthew, or chapters, actually chapter 4, John was put in prison. Now, what we'll read later on, by the way, by chapter 14, is the reason that John was put in prison was because he told the truth to a Herod up in the north. I mean, during this time, and once upon a time, there was a guy named Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a little guy, so he wasn't great because he was great looking or because he was great in stature. As a matter of fact, the argument is that he kind of looked a little bit like a Jewish Danny DeVito, if you know who that is. You know, I mean, he was really unimpressive to look at, per se. However, or Wallace Shawn, if you're familiar with him. And the idea of it, he's just kind of a little guy. But he was phenomenal in his building projects and his aspiration to rebuild the empire to make it something glorious. But he was also paranoid. He was so paranoid that he had all of his sons, at least the ones that he thought were able-bodied, he had them all executed because he certainly thought, who better to steal my throne from me than an able-bodied son? Which means then, and the question really is, which one would you rather be? Would you rather be the son that didn't make the cuts? Which then, of course, means that you lived, but obviously that's because you were a drooler. Or were you actually one of the guys that were really smart? Yay, Dad thinks I'm smart. And then you're dead. I don't know, you know, would you rather die proud? or Well, you get the idea. So after Herod the Great passed away, there was nobody capable of handling his kingdom like there was before, like, like Herod the Great. All those guys had been executed. So they divvied it up and broken into fours. We would read it as the word for four, by the way, in the lines, tetra. And so they were tetrarchs, is the term we read. Now, in the northern area, the area today, by the way, of, of, of Israel and parts of, you will, of Lebanon and Syria, were broken up into two guys. The farthest north was a guy named Philip. Just underneath him, then, was Philip, or Caesar, or, I'm sorry, Herod Antipas. Now, Philip had a wife, Herodias, nonetheless. You should have seen it coming. She was apparently a real cutie, a real cookie. But brother, his, his brother who just lived south of him, saw that the one thing he wanted from his brother was his wife. And through a series of events, steals her from his brother. So Philip always kind of gets, I mean, we know Philip from the one who sort of builds Caesarea Philippi. That's kind of what we know. Jesus will actually ask there, who do men say that I am? Well, we kind of know him the most is the guy that loses his girl to his brother. Well, Antipas, by the way, then takes this guy, his brother's wife. Well, Herod nails him on it. And you've probably heard it said, Hell hath no wrath like a woman scorned. And she is angry. And due to this, they have him imprisoned. And ultimately, what we'll see, and this is a spoiler alert, by chapter 14, is that they'll have him executed. So between chapters 4 and 14 of Matthew, John the Baptist is in prison. 
Now, for a guy that, that may have bought into the PR about what the conquering king is going to do, well, this would be really rough to reconcile. Let's be honest. You're in prison, and what you expected was Jesus to kind of come in and, you know, kind of come in like the Hulk or Thor or something, you know, and just start beating everyone. And then at the end of it all, I mean, the last thing you would expect as his sort of forerunner is to still be in prison. And he kind of doesn't see things happening the way that he thinks. So as a result of that, he sends guys in and he says, you guys, I'm really having a hard time figuring this one out. Now, understand, this was the same guy who said that the one who sent him, which was God, said the one that you're baptizing and the one that a dove lands upon, not just bounces off of, but stays on. He says, that's your man. And John's already told his own disciples, that's the man. Look at it happen, just like God promised. So we got the dove thing down. We got that all worked out. But we really have a hard time reconciling this part. So John sends disciples and they kind of come to Jesus. And Jesus is busy about the ministry that God has called him to, which, by the way, is conquering and comforting. And they kind of look and they're like, excuse me, um, John the Baptist is kind of having a crisis of faith here. Because, you see, he already had worked out in his mind how this was going to work out. And it isn't working out that way. You ever have that problem? You know, you've gotten to this point where, I mean, God's given you a couple hints. He's told you what the next step is. And you've already filled in steps two through 40. You know, God says, take a step east. And you're like, I'm going to China. And God's like, no, no, no. One step east does not mean China. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, and I already have this ministry, and I have this house, and it's called the house of, and your name there. And the it's like amazing how much we fill in that are blanks, but God left it blanks so that he wouldn't tell us until we took the first step, like Abraham. And then it doesn't come out that way. And I understand why we're told to wait on the Lord versus to wait for the Lord. To wait for is, Mark is told Lisa he needs to go. And the two of them are going to dinner, and he waits in the car. It's running. And he's tapping and honking. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not, you know, this is hypothetical. He knows where he wants to go. He knows how he wants to do it. And he's just waiting for Lisa to come and catch up. But waiting on the Lord's a different story. So all of us get into a train car somewhere on the northern line. We want to go from here Let's just say down to Kennington. Halfway through, it stops. We are underground. And you get one of those, you know, because we don't understand what he's saying anyways, right? And we all kind of look at each other, and nobody really just wants to ask the person, I said, did you get any of that? Because I I didn't get any of that. We're going to be down here for about eternity, so uh, just get comfortable, and once we get this worked out, we'll get you out of purgatory. I mean, you, you kind of get that, right? And so you kind of sit there, and there's nothing you can do. It is, I mean, you're in a train car, underground, in a tunnel, and there's nothing you can do. I mean, at best, you can stand up for a second and then sit back down. And you wait. You can't just go, excuse me, but I've decided, since you're running late, you should turn the car this way and go somewhere else because I really don't even want to go to Kennington now. All you can do is wait in the hands of a driver. So whatever happens, happens. But you can't change anything. In the end of it all, that's waiting on the Lord versus waiting for the Lord. 
And there are psalms filled with, I'm waiting for the Lord. And you see them struggle with these four moments. But then Isaiah tells us if we wait on the Lord, well, that's an entirely different situation altogether. We would run and not get weary, walk and not faint. Because in such a situation, we're not telling God what our will is is best. We know his is. Well, John's having a real struggle here. Well, the other issue, and we'll see here in a moment, is the issue of Elijah. Because, of course, the promise is that Elijah must come first. Oh, that's been prophesied all the way in Malachi, 5, Malachi 4, the last book of Scripture, just a few verses before we conclude the book. And, and what's interesting is how Jesus points it to him. And yet John looks now and he says, so ask him, is he, is he really the guy? I'm expecting a conqueror here. And I'm not seeing an awful lot of conquering. There's my problem. There's one countertext to this. This particular situation isn't listed in Mark. It's not listed in John. But it is in Luke chapter 7. And in Luke chapter 7, in our countertext in verse 21, it says, At that very hour, he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. And then it says, then Jesus answered and good said, go and tell them the things you've just seen. See, Jesus never sends witnesses out without having witnessed something. I mean, it's funny that we use the term now, this vernacular, we're going to go out and witness. Well, what that means, if you think about it, is you're going to go experience something you can tell other people about later. Now, going to testify, that's another story. Testifying means you're going to tell of something you've already experienced. But you think about it, what happens here is he's got these people and they're coming and going, well, we want to know what's going on here. I mean, we're missing the conquering part. And Jesus goes, hold on a second. And the guy comes and he has one arm and Jesus goes, he lays hands on the up pops his arm and a guy can't see and Jesus puts his hands on him and he can see now. And, 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 and the guy's going like, we don't see any conquering taking place. We don't, where's our conqueror? And Jesus goes, hold on a second. And here's a leper and he lays hands and then the guy has no leprosy. We're looking for a conqueror. Do you get it? And then a guy's brought in dead. We can't see any conquering happen. And Jesus goes, get up. And the guy gets up and everyone freaks out. And Jesus goes, well, well, why don't you just tell John what you just saw? Because the problem isn't that Jesus wasn't conquering. The problem was he wasn't conquering what they wanted conquered. What they wanted conquered was Rome. What they wanted conquered was the inconvenience of the moment, not the eternal problems that Jesus was trying to demonstrate through these beautiful miracles in front of him. And we could tell God, God, you don't understand. These bills drive me crazy. These people drive me crazy. This situation drives me crazy. Deliver me from this thorn. Where's your conquering? And the Lord's like, I am conquering something infinitely greater if you'd look at me and watch me. Interesting, sometimes God keeps the thorn because what he's really trying to conquer is you. And we hate that. We, what we want is God to work and fight side by side with us, not God to lead us in the battle. Well, we like that idea in, in the standpoint of the victory that he provides, but not in the idea that we have to follow. We'd rather be the one that goes, Jesus, I'll tell you what, I'll sit on the throne, you sit at my right hand, and I'll tell you what to do, and then go, do it great. But it just doesn't work that way. And there becomes our problem. So, Jesus tells them, then, oh, look it. You really want to see what it looks like when Jesus is someplace? 
Well, he lays it out this way. Look at the blind or the formerly blind and lame and the lepers and the dead and the deaf and the poor. Look at them for a second and see what happens. Because he goes, what's interesting in all of this is I get this. The blind see. That's pretty amazing. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I start going, okay, sure. The lame, they walk. Sure. Guy didn't have any legs on it. Out popped a couple legs and he's starting to walk. That is really cool. Lepers coming in and getting cleansed? Sure. The deaf hearing? Yeah. The dead being raised? Now, wouldn't that be something? But he says, and the poor? Have the gospel preached to them? I mean, he lists out six things, and, and one of them is that the poor even hear the good news? How does that fit on the same level as those others? This guy just grew a leg. This guy now uses both of his eyes. This person was dead and they're not. And there's poor people and that, that have been struggling with the world and now have victory. Not victory. Well, that sounds an awful lot like conquering to me, especially if I go back 700 years to the book of Isaiah 61, where Jesus started his ministry, stood up in Nazareth and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me too and prepares him for all the things he's about to do here. And I look at this and I think, now wait a minute. What these disciples have to do is go back and and go, well, he didn't really answer the question, but he did answer the question. Notice Jesus never said, oh, no, no, I'm really the guy. Because what Jesus did, he'd rather have the evidence speak for itself. Because him just saying it isn't going to mean anything to a person struggling. Listen, listen, just saying it may mean nothing to a person who's struggling. What they need is evidence. And no matter how much we argue and debate and throw all of these things in someone's face, as much as we'd like to do that, it's the evidence that makes the difference. And they say, now let me ask you something. Is there somebody who couldn't, who was just blind to the things of the world and now can actually see clearly? Do you remember the moment you said yes to Jesus and how some things became so clear that never were clear before? You're like, I can't believe I see this like this. I never saw it like this before. I mean, do you remember what it was like to actually get a walk with Christ? And not just say you were going to heaven, but get a walk with Christ? Because we were lame before that, but now, well, now things are changed. Do you remember what it was like to feel pure? Perfectly, that shouldn't be a distant memory, but as we walk in Christ, we remain pure in Him. So you want to see Jesus? You want to see where Jesus is? Watch people start to see Watch people start to get a walk. Watch people get pure. Watch people finally do more than just observe sound, but really listen and learn and get life. And those struggling in the world find hope. Now go tell John that. And go tell the people that are looking for those very things. Looking for a real Messiah. One to be Lord and Savior of their life. Lord and Savior. Conqueror and Comforter. Go show them more than a dusty book. And I'm not, I don't mean scripture. I mean books of dead church fathers and so forth. Go show them more than just a couple arguments and run out the teleological approach and monis polens and so forth and try to run them some, through some form of logical gamut. Take them through all of those gauntlets if you wish, but in the end of it all, what they're starving for is to see a blind person see. And even if that isn't literally, although it can be as well literally, 
they know most people that they don't see things clearly, but they're really tired of people telling them what's clear. And you go, you know, no, I, I'm very, very different from that. He's changed me. He's delivered me. And Jesus then turns from this as these guys have been sent off. And I remind you, they spent an hour with Jesus and that was their answer. Watching Jesus transform people. What if the hour was this hour? What would happen? What would the Lord see? What would other people see? What would John the Baptist's people see if they came and sat here among us? What would they see happening in our hearts? Would they see the same? Or is this just something we do because it's Sunday? I mean, if Jesus isn't here, why in the world are we doing this? But Jesus takes this moment now and turns around and he defends John the Baptist. See, he's not just going to teach John the Baptist's disciples, but he's going to teach his own now. And he asks them, what did you come to see? I mean, we, what, that's what we assume then is that so many of these people had started with John the Baptist and wound up with Jesus, which is where they should have. He says, what did you come to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What did you come to see? A guy in really soft clothing? Now understand, we know what that looks like because we are in the heat of political madness. Both places on the pond, this side and there. Who's going to be our mayor? Are we going to stay in or out of the European Union? We know how those things can be challenged. On the other side, the whole thing is a circus. When you watch who it is that's running and it's like, anyways, I shouldn't even go there. But it just, the whole thing is madness. And you watch what a reed swaying in the wind is. That means whichever the way the wind blows, it leans towards it. And is that you? Is that me? The opposite of that would be somebody with a spine. Somebody with some fortitude that doesn't bend among a crowd that seems a little bit more hostile against the truth of Jesus Christ. And we've been teaching people, and I mean we as in the church in Mass, how to try to do this nuanced dance among people who are like clogging in front of us. You know, don't offend people with the truth. Just kind of, not, just speak as much as you can in as little as possible to just sort of let them know somehow you're kind of different. And that's about it. But people are starving for the truth. And the people didn't flock to John the Baptist because what they were looking for was another politician. Somebody that was mamby-pamby that was, yeah, you know, well, man, I'm not really sure about the creation thing or I'm not really sure where God stands on a man and a woman and what they really are. Or, you know, all these things that we kind of run that are sort of questionable that we really kind of know. And what happens is you start removing those. Did you notice how the moment you start removing those clear boundaries, how things just become utterly maddening? Because now it's so undefined. We don't know. I don't I mean, now there's 40 different genders you can pick for your child. 40. 40 different genders. I don't even know how you get that. I have two. My life's really simple. And maybe I'm just closed-minded and simple, but I'd like to. I didn't have a problem figuring it out in regards to our children. I know what I am. I'm nothing trapped in another thing. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to be honest. If we're reeds swaying in the wind... Nobody will come to us when they're in a storm because we have no security that they think they can hold on to. And we think we're doing them a favor, but everyone gets their hurricanes. 
And everybody is starving for something to hold on to. And God told us that he would shake what is shakable, that that which is unshakable would remain. And John turns, or Jesus turns and says, and I remind you, this is John's last repartee with Jesus before he dies. And Jesus looks at the rest of me and goes, well, what did you go for? When you went to John, did you see somebody that was wavering, that was undulating? Or did you come for somebody that you were confident knew where he stood? Hey, don't you respect somebody that stands on what they stand on, even if you disagree with them more than somebody you have no clue what they stand on? You know, it's interesting. We're being taught tolerance, but isn't tolerance actually being willing to respect a person that you disagree with their opinion, not demanding that everyone agree that you're right? What's interesting is how the people who are pushing tolerance have been so busy to try to tell me that I have to agree with them, and if I don't agree with them, then clearly I'm being intolerant. Can't I disagree and honor them still and respect them anyways? Because if I can't do that, then there really isn't such a thing as tolerance because we all have to agree, and that really is tyranny. And John the Baptist was not a bending guy. He bent to the will of God, and that was it. But he wasn't going to bend and make friends. He was going to stand tall, and because of that, he was respected. Jesus said, of all the people born of women, there's no one greater. And yet in that, he tells us he's even greater than a prophet. And the reason is he's more than a prophet because he's actually the promised that Malachi promised when he said he would send a messenger. But he also said, did you come finding somebody in soft clothing? In other words, you know... When we look at somebody that has soft clothing, and we don't necessarily use that term today because, let's be honest, prayerfully your clothes are soft. But did you come looking for somebody that was really dressed super nice with the idea that this was the idea of success? The reason why people come to church is because they're tired of what the world says is success and it's not working for them. And they're coming to the church, to be honest, to try to find out if there is anything other. Than that. Like, is there another option I'm not finding? Because clearly I must be a freak because I seem to be getting the things of the world and it's not working. So is it me or is it the world? And if they don't find it here, they'll find it with someone. I mean, why is it that people are flocking to things like ISIS? Why are, why are cults prospering? Because to be honest, they're the reeds that aren't swaying in the wind. And people would, I mean, they'd rather see a guy with a machine gun, but at least he seems to be really clear what he wants. His objectives are obvious, though I don't agree with any of them. But he has a spine. And then there's us. We're like jellyfish. They don't, we don't, no one knows where we start or end, and it's like they don't even know the difference between us and cults because we don't have a definitive beginning or end on those things. But we should. Jesus literally died for literally our sins and literally on the third day rose again so that we could literally have the forgiveness of God because he's literally the only option that God allowed. Is that offensive? Sure. But guess what Jesus says at this? Blessed is he who is not offended by me. Jesus offends. The truth offends. If you're a doctor dealing with someone with cancer and you have to tell him, that's offensive. But you're worse to, tell them not, to, to not tell them at all. Is that what you came looking for? No, 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 no. That's not what you came looking for. What you actually came looking for then was a prophet. But I tell you, he was even greater than a prophet because he was more than a prophet. He was promised. This is what was written when he said, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way for me. That's Malachi 3.1, by the way. 
written 430 years prior to Jesus showing up here. This is assuredly a city that those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, and yet he was least, and the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How is that possible? Because notice the term that Jesus used to qualify John, those that were born of women. The least in the kingdom of heaven is born of God. And there's the difference. So, and from those days, verse 12, one of the most misused texts in Scripture I've noticed. So from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Because all the prophets of the law prophesied until John. But if you're willing to receive it, he really is Elijah who was to come. He was ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I've been in churches where they've said, the kingdom of heaven is taken by force. So we need to take it by force. We're going to take it by force. Now, sometimes all that just means is that everyone acts like a lunatic in the church. And I've been in those. Well, I mean, they start like running laps. I mean, I will say this. They are a healthy church uh, physically. But, when it, but it, they seem spiritually crazy when I'm watching this. And it's like, no, we're going to take it by force. We're going to take it by And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, if a, if a government official walked into a church like that, I would think they would be freaked out. The problem is the word suffers. Did you get that word in there? Has that ever been a positive term to you? The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. From the time that John the Baptist showed up, there has been suffering going on in the kingdom. And the suffering is because of violence. And this violence, notice the term take it. The term take it is a term you might be familiar with because it's the term harpizo. Harpizo is the word we get, and in the Latin is the word rapturus. Rapturus is where we get the word rapture. And understand what the word means is to snatch away. You know, Bruno and I are walking. Bruno was about to fall onto the tracks as the train is coming. I grab him. I'm not going to go, excuse me for a second, and then dance him over onto the platform. I'm going to grab him with whatever I can get a hold of, and I'm going to pull him onto the platform, and he can yell at me later about how that might have been a little less gentle. But it is a violent snatching. And understand, this is the term. Now, there are terms for grab or hold, like echo, which means just to hold, or dito, which means to give. There are terms that mean to get or grab or take, or there are terms that mean to go and get. But there, the term to actually violently pull something away is the term harpizo, and that's the term that is used here. So put that in the mix now. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence because the violent seek to take it away by force. There is the idea. Violently snatch it away. What are they trying to violently snatch away? They're trying to violently snatch away the kingdom. There's our problem. Now remind you that Jesus came to fulfill the prophecies about a Messiah, and those prophecies made clear that he came to conquer and to comfort. And what Jesus says then, he goes, listen, this whole Elijah thing that you're looking for, he really is that. As a matter of fact, from Malachi 4 or 5, where it promised that Elijah would come, people have actually, since that day, when they had Passover, they would have the Koseliyahu, which is the cup of Elijah parked at the door or at the nearest window, just in case Elijah shows up, that he can have a cup and join them for the Passover. Interesting. In Luke 1.17, it tells us that when John the Baptist was to be born, it was prophesied he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So it was pretty evident how that was going to work out. 
But when the religious leaders come to find John the Baptist in John 1.21, they ask him if he was Elijah, and he said no. The reason he said no, because he wasn't Elijah, but he came in the spirit of power of Elijah. He was a foretaste. There's a Hebrew expression, and it's a fun expression. So you want to learn, so here's, a, here's four simple words. Ready? Um, so, kitsat po, try that, kitsat po, kitsat po. Me'od sham. Kitsat means little. Po means here. Or it's a panda, but that's another story. But kitsat po means a little here. Me'od sham means a lot there. And the idea is simple. That what God does not often in prophecies, he gives us hints, little tastes of something that will be greater later. For instance, Hitler was a kitsat po. The Antichrist will be the me'od sham. He is a foretaste of what will be. John the Baptist, Kitsapo, Elijah coming in the flesh. Well, that will be the Ma'od Sham. And that is a common expression. And they grab a hold of this. And he goes, look, it's coming in the spirit and power of you guys get that kind of thing. And for what it's worth, by the way, when they ask, well, what about Elijah? Isn't he supposed to come? Well, it's interesting. Jesus just had a board meeting in, in Matthew 17 up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he did show up. When you get to the book of Revelation, what seems evident is that there are two guys that sort of show up. We know them as the two witnesses. And when they do show up, one of them does all of the things that Elijah seems to do. The other one seems to do everything that Moses did. Put that together if you like to. But what's evident is, is that Elijah was a rock star among the religious leaders. We know that because even when Jesus was dying on the cross, Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which, my God, my God, why have you, you quotes from the beginning of, of Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus came as a baby. They say he's calling for Elijah. Jesus is saying, Eloi, my God. And they're saying, he's calling for Elijah? And they're like, no, 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 don't help him. Let's see if Elijah comes to help him. Oh, they had all kinds of faith in Elijah. They just didn't have any faith in Jesus. They wanted that powerful guy because what they wanted was a conqueror. <clears throat> the problem is they didn't want to be conquered by God. And when you don't want God to conquer you, but you just want God to conquer your stuff, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So please understand something. Seeing there are those who have concertedly decided they are going to try to take this kingdom away from you. Not even give you the chance to say yes. The question is, who are they? We'll look at the next verses. This whole thing glues together on this. So, to what's why I like in this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to their companions, and they see two different things. Hey, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. And then we, we play the dirge for you. We mourn for you, but you wouldn't mourn with us. What gives? I mean, we played the happy and you wouldn't be happy with us. We did the sad and you wouldn't be sad with us. Why won't you respond? What's left? We did nothing and you did nothing with us. And he says, now look at the difference with John the Baptist and myself. Remember John the Baptist camp? That was one of mourning. 
It was one where it was about repentance and fasting and austerity and discipline. And he says, there is that. And he goes, man, but you didn't go to that. And by the, by the, by the way, Luke tells us that the Pharisees rejected the will of God for themselves, refusing to be baptized by John. In other words, God's will can be rejected and was by the religious leaders who wouldn't be baptized by John. John says, you need to repent. And they're like, no, I don't. I'm, me and God are good. Someone's like, oh, are you in for a rude awakening? Jesus, Jesus says, but then here I come, and I come eating and drinking with everyone. And they, tell, they say about John, he has a demon. And then me, I eat and drink with people, and they say, look at this guy, he's a party animal. Now listen, 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 how this all fits together. Because on one side you have the comfort, and on one side you have the conquering. The conquering, there's an issue of repentance and surrender to God. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. Look, we're playing the dirge. Do you feel that need inside of you to call out to God because there's something missing? And you know it. And you want to fill it in with a relationship. You want to fill it in with drugs or power or success or whatever it is that the world you think you can offer you. But in the end of it all, there is this hunger inside of you. And there's a mourning there. And we mourn because death is what makes us mourn. And something inside of us says, something's dead that needs to come alive. And I'm, I'm missing something. And I need that thing. I don't know what it is, but I need it. He goes, John came saying, get ready for that because it's coming. And it's like, the problem was, is you wouldn't go there. The, notice it says, and they. Who is the they? Well, we go back to the last part. They are the violent that are taking the kingdom and seeking to snatch it away. You know what they're saying is there's no need for that. And there's a whole part of the church that can do this. That says, you know, Jesus is like your homeboy. He's, you know, he's just a good fella. And, you know, he's just, you know, he's just, you know, he's just somebody's your drinking buddy. He just wants to sit and have a Guinness with you. You know, and it's like this whole place where Jesus like has no holiness. And he's just kind of cool. And he's like a care bear. But there's no conquering in it. And the question is, is that what we are? We don't want to actually realize that we need to deal with sin because, listen, listen, if we don't recognize we are sinners, there will be no need for a Savior. And then telling someone Jesus died to save you sounds like nonsense to a person who doesn't recognize they're a sinner. What John the Baptist is saying is don't bank on your Jewishness. Don't bank on who you were born and whose home you were born in. Don't bank on all of this religion and all of this stuff. In the end of it all, you're going to have to deal with your own sin because they didn't make you sin. That's yours to deal with. And you need to be conquered. And you need the conqueror to pay for those sins. But on the other side of it, Jesus comes and he fellowships and he fellowships with the filthiest to make them clean. Listen, you come as you are, you just don't leave that way. And, and understand, there are those, and they say, well, look at that. That's just a party animal. And a, you know, he's, that's clearly not, that's not, that's not religion. And there are those in the church where all they're about is the other. So you're about the rules, and you're the stand-up, sit-down, fight, 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 and everything's about the rules, and, and everything's a box to tick, but there's no relationship in there anymore. And they snatch that out. And they're like, no, 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 we'll have none of that dancing in church. No, don't give me any of that singing and no instruments. I want this to be a New Testament church. I mean, I've been to those. But they say, you know, we're a New Testament church, so we don't allow musical instruments. I'm like, let me ask you, do you have toilets? They're like, excuse me? I'm like, well, in the Old Testament, we do read that Saul went and relieved himself. We do see people went to the toilet, but there's no toilets in the New Testament. 
Do you have toilets at your church? Well, well, surely they must be there. Well, what about musical instruments? Oh, no, no, they're not. Oh, funny, who picks that stuff? I'm just trying to be honest. Somewhere down the line, this is what a healthy Christian walk looks like. You ready? Boom, both. There is the conqueror and the comforter. The conqueror that says, you, need, you are filthy without me. You are a sinner and you need to get right and you can't do it yourself. And the comforter who says, I'll do it for you if you let me. And when we took those two things, and God never said shove them in the same box. What God said is open up your faith to say they both exist. Because the moment I open my faith, I get absolutely in awe of God. And that's the way it should be. I'm like, wow, how does this work? So you really are all holy and really don't stand with sinful men, but you'll sit with them as long as they're willing to surrender so you can make them clean. So you're not in ever endorsing their sin, but rather you're saying, come to me. And here's the crazy part. As, as we kind of, believe it or not, we walk towards the end. Jesus now looks at them and he goes, put this whole thing together. This is what John was having a problem with. John was a conquering kind of guy. He was on the repentance camp. And as a result of that, he had a hard time seeing how I was conquering. But what I was conquering was happening in this camp by being, meeting with the people and making them more like me. And so what John was struggling with was, well, where's the conquering? He's like, where's the conquering? Wait till you see what happens when a leper's made clean. What happens to that guy? And some of you know it, because we were addicts, because we were violent, because we were crazy people, because we were horrible in all of our ways. And when he conquered us, something radical happened in us. We sat at the table with him where we belonged. But we would never belong there. And we know it, and that's heading up and for his grace. And because we knew we would never belong there, we could go, wow, isn't it cool I'm here? Isn't it cool? And we look around the table at other people, and we don't just go, whoa, what are you doing here? How'd you get here? We just look and go, isn't it amazing I get to sit at this table with you? Isn't it amazing that the king of all kings sits and sups with us because we don't deserve it? And that just makes him good but, and full of grace. But what happened to this? He's like, on one side, there are those that would lean towards the dirge, but you don't even see the need to cry out for a Savior. And there are those that are into the dance, but you don't see a need for repentance. So over here, well, we'll just do whatever. Over here, no, you only do what we tell you. Somewhere between, there is, I'll trust in God's word, and I want a relationship with him. Look at, and he looks and he looks at these three cities, two of which we have very little on. Chorazim, by the way, we only have what he says here. But Saida, we know, by the way, from John, the three guys, Philip, Andrew, and Peter, were all from there. Capernaum, by the way, we read is his own city, Matthew 9.1. It's where, of course, Jesus does everything from heal Peter's mother-in-law to then the entire town shows up. And what he says is, man, if you guys are going to be held responsible for what I did here. Because you know what I did here? Is I conquered and I comforted and you refused both. I understand why James 3.1 tells us, be careful, don't call yourself a teacher. Be careful to call yourself a teacher because teachers require or obtain a stricter judgment. And the reason is, is because we have a greater knowledge. We spend our time delving into the word to understand it. And he goes, hey, what you know you're held accountable for. 
And Jesus looks and understand there's no joy in Jesus saying this. It isn't like yippee skippy, you guys get to be lifted up and brought to hell. He says, Capernaum, I said my headquarters here and you guys are going to be taken down. And don't let that be you today. Don't be somebody who knows so much but does so little about it. Because in the end, beloved, it really is going to be just about the two things. Did you surrender? And did you sit? Did you surrender to the conquering king? And did you sit with the great comforter? You know, it's interesting. The term comforter, you're probably familiar, is paraclete. It's the Greek word. It means called beside. Jesus, by the way, when he's about to leave in John 14, he says, you know, but when I go, I will leave you another comforter. For it to be another, alon paracleton. For it to be another means there had to be one first. Well, the first one was him. He goes, look it. I'm calling you to this. In our last few verses, he breaks into prayer. Remember, instead of reconciling two things, having a faith big enough to include them both, God being perfectly holy, but fellowshipping with a perfectly filthy man? Well, here's the other one here, right, in our text. Oh, Father, thank you. You know, when we read about praying without ceasing, we think somehow we have to close our eyes and kneel. And a whole life of closing and kneeling will not be a very long one. Sooner or later, you're going to have to eat. But if what it is is in constant communication with the Father, we have such a great example with Jesus. Paul, too, by the way, when Paul talks about God and how he's using and, and, and setting aside and still inserting and reusing Israel, he breaks forth into praise at the end. Oh, the, just the immeasurable brilliance of God. His ways are so beyond figuring out. And this is from a brilliant man saying that, Paul. And I love how here Jesus, of all people, as he speaks, and I can see him as he looks at Chorazim, and as he looks at Chorazim, as he looks at Capernaum, as he looks at Bethsaida, you could see his heart crumbling in, in tenderness towards these places that are refusing the flute, and they're refusing the dirge. And as they're refusing that, it's like he's got to find comfort at that moment. So what does he do? He calls on the Father. Do you have situations where you see somebody and you're watching them and you're watching them make horrible choices and you know they're being misled and you know they're embracing things that are pulling them away from the Lord and you watch them make choices that are to their own destruction and you can get so consumed in that that you just... It, it makes you crumble yourself, but you've got to do what Jesus, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's got to be good enough for us. And he just looks and says, all right, Father, thank you. Because somehow in all of this, though, you've hidden it to the brilliance. You've revealed it to babes. And I love this, how Jesus ends this, because what he does is he says, this is what you're missing by not taking me. You know what you're missing by putting these two things in your life, by allowing Jesus to be the conqueror and the comforter of your life? Do you know what you're missing? He says, look in. If you're going to come to me, the Father's bringing you. I get that. And if you're going to understand anything, I'm going to reveal it to you. I get that. But then Jesus throws an open invitation to come to him. So is God totally sovereign? Absolutely. Is there man responsible for a choice? Absolutely. And they're both in the text. When someone says, well, which one do you choose? Show me where God told me I had to pick one. 
When someone says, how do you reconcile the two? I say, my faith is big enough to hold them both. I like that. He's bigger than my math. He is infinite, you're aware, right? Almighty. So Jesus says this, and hear me as we end this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Now understand the idea of it is you've been working so hard that you're exhausted. You are gasping for breath. Jesus says, you know what the problem is? You're carrying the wrong burden. You know what the problem is? You've been yoked to the wrong thing. He says, please, come to me. I know you're exhausted. I know you're worn down. I know you're out of breath. And you know what happens when you get tired, beloved. God blesses us to see children. And even if you don't have any, if you, buy, if you ride public transportation, oh, you'll get them. You're in a store, you'll get them. And before you're a parent, you hear them cry and scream and so forth. And you just say, well, if that child were mine, and you have your own idea about how you'd handle it. But then you become a child, or child, you will, in essence, you become a parent and you realize how little you do know. And then as you get a little older, somewhere between parents and grandparents, I'm told that you get to this place where you realize when children start screaming, a lot of times you just turn and you say, I think that one needs a nap. That's it, just a nap. We call it the storm before the calm. And they're screaming and crying. Every little thing is huge. No, 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 no. And it's the little things. I don't want to tie my shoe. Ah. You know, it's like crazy. They made, they've made a monster out of a little thing. And you watch this thing. If that person, if that poor little kid could just rest, they'd definitely be less demonic when they woke up. And we get older. And we do the same thing. We just do it in a different way. We just snip at each other. We get hangry. We get nasty. We get emotional and we cry over stupid things. We as in the mass, not me. But, you know, and, you know, it's, and we just little things become so huge for us. And it's like, oh, my God, oh, no, my God, I do. And we're singing, nobody knows. And we're just, like, crying out like we're, like, like we're the, like life is at the pits. And it's over something that if we could just rest, we would look and go, how in the world was I whining about that? What was I thinking? And Jesus says, you know, the problem is you can't get rest anywhere else. So you do a little drugs, you drink a little bit, and you wake up with a hangover and a, and a charge against you. <clears throat> You're no better for it and your problems are still staring you in the face. You've jumped into another relationship or something like that and now things are complicated because you still have your problem and you have new problems to add to it. And you chase after something and you realize the only way is to get rest so you can approach it with a healthy mind. And Jesus says, I know you're exhausted. You know why I know you're exhausted? Because people have been working so hard to snatch the kingdom away from you by trying to take away one or both sides of this. But if you could surrender yourself, you wouldn't fear the conqueror. And if you did, what you'd find in that is a place to rest with the comforter. So he says, listen, come to me. 
the three terms he's going to say here is come, take, and learn. If you come to me, I'm never going to cast you away, Jesus speaking. But if you come, I'm going to give to you. But what I'm going to give to you is a yoke. And you go, what? A burden? That's not what I want. I don't want a burden. I'm already burdened. I'm already heavy laden. That's the problem. Jesus goes, no, you don't understand. The reason why you're so tired and exhausted is because you're carrying the wrong one. There was a series of time where I was having these really bad neck pains. I couldn't figure out what in the world was going on. I mean, I was like, man, what happened to me? And I'm starting to contemplate all of the fights that I had as I was younger and all of these other things to try to figure out what war wound probably is instigating all of this. And I just remember from all of that, strange as it was, what had happened ultimately was my backpack, my rucksack broke. And I used to break them, by the way, once every month or two. Uh, until, by the way, by God's grace, I'd gotten a beautiful one that I still have, I've had for about a year now. Uh, that is an army one. It's supposed to, you know, I should be able to carry a tank in it now, which is good. And I remember the moment I put on the new one, the moment I put on the new one, my neck, my neck problems went away. Because the problem was, is this, this thing that I was carrying wasn't built for me. And it certainly wasn't built for the amount of weight that I was putting in it. I remember the moment I put it on, I was like, man, I was so exhausted. I put this thing on, I felt like I could fly. Look at, for a yoke to be easy literally means it's well-fitting. Something that fits in your shoulders the proper way. You see, if you have no yoke, you have no purpose. And he says, don't come to me and then have no purpose. I have a whole new purpose. And notice, by the way, God's not a God of nots. He's a God of instead ofs. So you come to me with your yoke, with your burden, and I'm going to swap you out. I'll take, I will take yours, that one that has shame and guilt and regret and confusion and dishonor. I'll take all of that from you and I'll put it on me. That's the message of the cross. And that is the conqueror. But my burden is light. When you put on this new one, what you're going to find is you'll feel like you can fly. Things transform because I want you to give me your old life where you're trying to do it all yourself and I want to give you a new life where I'll be your life now. Your strength, your hope, your peace, your joy. And that's the comforter. The yoke being easy because he says, I built it for you now. I have one just for you. And we're probably aware that we all are built differently. Jesus' yoke for you is different than his yoke for me. His calling on your life different perhaps than mine. But don't miss. He has bespoke a calling to you. Now for a disciple, or he would call people and they would take upon the yoke of their teacher and they would call that their yoke. And Jesus is like, if you're willing to follow me, I have something just for you that's going to transform you into a world changer. Here's the crazy part. You'll work less and you'll bless more. You won't find yourself tired of the work. You might find yourself tired in it, but never of it. And I call you to that today. He goes, listen, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. 
Take my yoke upon me, upon you. Learn from me. As a discipler calls to his disciples, do you still want to stay in class? Stay in class with me. I'll tell you why. Because I'm gentle. I'm not here to rip you apart. I'm here to put you back together. I'm gentle and lowly. I'm not here to try to aggrandize my own personal pride issues. I just want to love you. And if you're willing, you'll find rest for your souls. Not just your mind, not just your heart. But the part of you where the appetites are, the soul. The part that craves and is hungry and is restless and feels like something's really missing. And Jesus says to you, Oh, Martha, Martha, you're so worried about so much, but only one thing is required. Look at your sister. She's just sitting with me. Sit with me. Sit with me and know me. Be with me. As we go to prayer, Christians first, let me ask you, where are you at on this? Are you willing to take both sides? Because what you find is, if we don't see how important it is for us to deal with sin by laying it at His feet, well, then we won't see how beautiful it is to sit at His feet for the rest of our lives. Are we willing to take both sides? Are we honest about the need for the purity to lay that before God? Or are we still trying to kind of... Because what happens if we pick up sinful lifestyles now and habits now, it's, we're putting them in the burden that's light until we put them there. And we're carrying things that aren't supposed to be ours to carry. I mean, we think sometimes that all the burdens are just problems. But let's face it, sin is just as heavy, if not heavier. It's like, man, lay those down at my feet. Let me wash those away from you. And then lay there and just enjoy me. Be with me. How are you with your relationship with him right now? Are you busy just trying to tell him how you've repented so much that you don't really just be with him? Do you find yourself so restless that you're looking and you're looking in places you know you shouldn't be looking? It's like looking in the fridge for your keys. You just kind of laugh at yourself because you know they're not going to be there. But you look anyways and you genuinely look. You even move things out of the way. And you're hungry for something and you're, you're in a place where you know that you shouldn't be looking and you're kind of moving things to see maybe I can try to make this fit, but you know you shouldn't. And let me ask you, have you even said yes to Jesus at all? Today, right now, I know the Lord's calling on you and I know right now He's working on you. Jesus died for your sins. He died so that you won't have to stand guilty before the Father and you could have a relationship with Him. It's really simple. It's all, what's also simple is the only reason to say no was pride, and that's a terrible reason, because you're too convinced that you can do it yourself. But until you let Jesus conquer you, you'll be exhausted and heavy laden. But that's the choice you need to make. But what you realize is the moment you say yes to Jesus, you say yes to His rest and find rest for your soul. And in doing so, he comes and dwells inside of you to have that relationship he really wants to have with you. That's the choice you make today. But that's your choice to make, not mine. I've made mine. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for what you've done in this time. I thank you, Lord, for this beautiful chapter and how you've walked us through it.
And we recognize, Lord, that John had a problem because he didn't see the conquering that you were doing, but what you were conquering were eternal things. Not just taking down Rome, but rather taking down our shame and our guilt. And I pray you would forgive me for those times I get so caught up in the world around me that I forget of how you are an eternally conquering king. Oh, no doubt you still, Lord, handle the here and now as well. But the things you do last for eternity. And I want to recognize your beautiful conquering. And I say, conquer me. Have me completely, please. Have me the way you desire me. Yours. And don't let me, Lord, play an impure game with you somehow and throw things in this burden that don't belong there. Things of selfishness and pride. But today, let me reconcile and be real with you in all things, all points. But also, let me always recognize that in doing so, I'm doing so recognizing that you call me to be with you. And the reason to do all of this is so that I can have a relationship with you you intend. One where my soul does find rest. So let me reconcile that with you now. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if right now you recognize the Lord is speaking to you, and as much as you want to fight it, and inside right now there is a fight going on, and, and, you're, and it's, it's almost, you're almost angry over this issue, and, and you realize in the end of it all that what the Lord's calling you to is to rest in Him, and, and you realize what you're fighting is His love. And it seems so crazy that somehow in all of this you would you really just want to try to do it yourself anyways. But you can hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you and saying, Oh, come on, hand this over. Give it over. And if that's you today, I'm just going to pray this prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask for you simply to give a, a confident amen. What you're saying is, I, I agree, let that be my words now, so be it. And here's the prayer. God, I confess to you. God in heaven, I confess to you I am a sinner just like everyone. I've done wrong, thought wrong, felt wrong. And that makes me stand guilty before you. But you've come to conquer and you've come to conquer the wage and penalty of my sin. So, since you sent Jesus to die for me on the cross so that all of my sin and the guilt could be conquered, I say yes. And I confess Jesus as my Savior. But as he rose again to give me brand new life on the third day, just as scripture promised. You offer me a life with fellowship with you. And I say yes. Confessing Jesus as my Lord. I say yes to you today. And I say, Lord, if you want me, have me. Make me yours. May I find that rest. My soul has been searching for as it has been mourning over my death for relationship between me and you prior. Fill me now, I pray, and make me yours as I hand myself to you in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, 
Amen. So, Lord, you've heard our prayers today. You've heard, Lord, these cries to you. And I know you take them seriously. So, Lord, lead us now, I pray. Make us, God, make us yours completely. And may we join in the dance that comes with being pure because of the mourning we have encountered in our own souls because of our own filth. Purify us completely and make us people who are totally yours. In Jesus' name.